Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, we speak with President Jefferson about the cost of war. Of all the American presidents, Jefferson was the one who said, peace is my passion, and thought that war should be the very last melancholy thing that a nation does in the face of provocation. And Jefferson believed that our Atlantic Ocean was a moat between us and the havoc and madness of the old world, and we should never interfere in European contests unless the very security of the United States was at stake. And he also pointed out that in the case of many wars, nothing really changes. Jefferson believed that most wars end with the restoration of what he called the status quo antebellum, essentially the same situation before the war, exists after the war, but thousands or millions of lives lost, people diverted from the arts of peace to the arts of struggle. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss current American events with President Thomas Jefferson. Mr. Jefferson, good to see you. You're looking well. I believe this early summer weather must be agreeing with you. The gardens are thriving here at Monticello. Good day to you. Sir, I wanted to talk to you about, well, the struggles of America and the difficult times we go through it. I can't think of anyone that would be more qualified than you to talk about America's struggles. You know, in the past, we've talked about usufruct. I wondered if maybe a, an attitude of usufruct would help us all in our day-to-day -day lives. Could you explain that to our listeners, sir? Yes, I used the phrase in a, in a famous letter to James Madison from Paris saying the world belongs to the living in usufruct. The earth belongs to the living in usufruct. And usufruct is a, is a, is a term from feudalism, and it, it means that the person who owns or manages an estate has the right to the fruits of that estate to its harvest, to its bounty, to what it can produce. That's the usufruct. But he must not draw down its fruitfulness, that our moral duty as husbandmen, our moral duty as citizens of the earth, is to leave the world as fruitful, and if possible, more fruitful than we found it. And that's our uh, a moral duty that can't be enforced by legal means. It really is a, a kind of attitude or almost a spiritual understanding of our responsibility as citizens of the world. It almost takes a selfless person to do that, and I think we have a lot of selfishness, and people don't think towards the future. I would encourage them to do so. Well, there is a certain level of selfishness that is built into the human character that can actually be used for this purpose. So if I have a farm and I can produce 30 bushels of wheat, but next year, using proper manuring techniques and contour plowing and so on, I produce 34 bushels of wheat or 40. Now I have made more profit at the same time that I have increased the bounty of, of the earth. As long as I'm doing that in a sustainable way, I have increased the usufruct of my farm. And at the same time, I have more money in my pocket to buy shoes for my children or books for my library. So there can be a way in which this is not entirely selfless, but I think you're certainly right, sir. Well, there are those who may say this is sort of a thankless act. If we, if we leave a better future for our children, we're not going to be here to see it. Well, that would be a very short 
sighted view. I had two adult children and a number of grandchildren, and I lived to embrace them and to get down on my hands and knees and play with them. I actually thought their future would be better than ours because everything that we had done in my lifetime was now the normal state of things. We had a republic, we had a constitution, we had bills of rights. Now their duty was to take that, not for granted, but to, but to work as, as a foundation from that and move towards greater heights of liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So every grandparent has a sense of our duty to the future, but more than that, you know, we've been blessed with the most fertile continent in the world. The Mississippi Valley is probably the, the greatest single agricultural entity on earth. We have to look to the future to realize that America has a destiny that we get to play a small role in. And if, if we don't do the right thing, if we don't have a philanthropic or communitarian view of these things, then it's not, it's not a crime, but, but in a certain sense, it's a moral failure. Well, sir, finally, as, as an American citizen, I embrace this attitude and I, I wish more citizens would. I do too. You know, I, I saw in Virginia in my time, plantations wearing down the soil, uh, letting the soils wash away in the heavy rains, planting tobacco year after year and, and, and reducing the, the nutritional value of the earth, and then moving on. It was cheaper to buy new land or, or to squat on new land in the West than to treat the lands we had with re responsibility and respect. So I know that this can go terribly wrong. And I tried to show a greater commitment to husbandry and stewardship at my own farms at Monticello. Thank you so very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm your host, David Swenson, here with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. Clay Jenkinson, the man who portrays Mr. Jefferson when he's here. And now seated before me is Thomas Jefferson. I say good day to you, sir. Good day to you, my dear citizen. Mr. Jefferson, I wanted to speak with you this week about the cost of war, specifically starting with the American Revolution. My understanding, sir, is that the, at the beginning of the revolution, the colonies were flourishing economically. They enjoyed free trade. American merchants were able to transport their goods in European and American ships. Taxes were reasonable or non-existent. But as the war began and continued, America's era of economic prosperity began to fail. Well, there certainly was a setback, not only because we had to divert the useful purposes of an economy to arms, uh, cannons, uh, gunpowder, uh, clothing for troops, rifles, and so on. And that meant that the, there was no money for more important things like libraries and schools and the improvements in agriculture or internal uh, improvements like canals 
and roads and bridges and post offices. So there was that cost of war. But a war is also destructive. The British had uh, destroyed Norfolk. Uh, they occupied our cities. They damaged our property. They burned our crops. When the war came to Virginia, during my time as governor of Virginia, they marched on Monticello but did not damage it much. But at my other farms, they burned tobacco barns down, um, stole or killed horses, ran off with enslaved people. Uh, the havoc of the war, all the way from New Hampshire down to Georgia, was enormous. And once you destroy all of that, of course, it has to be rebuilt. And when you're rebuilding, you're using money and, and human ingenuity that could better be spent in some other way. So, unfortunately, this was what we call a just war. We, we knew that we, we must declare our independence from Britain. That was a moral responsibility. We knew that this was going to cost blood and treasure, and it did. The war lasted much longer than anyone could have hoped. Uh, by the time the war was over, we had a huge state debt. Every state had gone into debt to survive, and a huge national debt. Mr. Hamilton combined them uh, when he was the Secretary of the Treasury, and suddenly we're a free nation, but we're a free nation weighed down with this enormous debt burden. Uh, and where did that debt burden come from? It came from survival, and it came from our insistence upon being treated as a sovereign and independent nation. So we began with this deficit, a deficit of buildings, a deficit of horses, a deficit of uh, farmlands and food, a deficit of funds. And fortunately, the new world is so fertile and the American people are so industrious that we were soon able to, to crawl out from all of that debt. But imagine what we could have done with those years and those those funds, including human resources, had we not had to, to fight a bloody war of independence, had this really just occurred diplomatically, sir? Well, we're talking about the economic cost of war, and of course the human toll is a whole nother subject, but uh, the United States had to deal with this economically. My understanding is they began to print money in order to deal with the debts. Yes, so we needed to finance the war. Robert Morris of Philadelphia was the American financier of the war. We had no national bank. We really had almost no banks at the time. We were still a very primitive, almost in-kind economy. And so Robert Morris, who was a friend to the establishment people like George Washington and Governor Morris and so on, uh, was able to put together, to patch together a financial system, which, which allowed us to go on but we couldn't get the loans that we needed. We got some money from France, but not nearly enough. And so at that point, you begin to write uh, IOUs or you issue currency or paper currency. These in our time were known as continentals. This was the first national currency of the United States. And as you well know, by the time the war ended, these continentals had lost most of their value and we were now facing a, a world of inflation because if, if, a, if a continental can buy a hogshead of tobacco one day and the next day it can only buy a quarter of a hogshead of tobacco, then you print more money to make that possible. Congress just printed more money, as we've talked about, to fund these expenses. 
But the result was severe inflation and the depreciation of the continental dollar, as you've just said. Uh, of course. And this you know, produced a, a set of crises. I paid much of my own personal debt during the course and shortly after the war. But under the terms of the Paris Agreement of 1783, those payments were not accepted because they had been made with continental currency. And so not only had I sacrificed to pay my bills during the war to keep up with interest payments and so on, but after the war, I had to pay them all over again with our new national currency. And so this was one example of thousands, maybe tens of thousands up and down the American coastal heartland during this time. So everybody suffered. Widows whose husbands had been killed in the war, who lived in towns and cities, suffered. Farmers suffered. The British carried away more than 30 of my slaves. And although I'm a, an opponent of slavery, this was still a, a, an enormous economic loss. We had to scramble after the war to put together something like an economy. And, and we knew that this was a, a just war, a righteous war, a war that, that had to be fought. But nobody can say that it wasn't a devastating blow to the pursuit of happiness of the people of the United States. In the long run, we knew everything would be fine. In the short run, uh, it produced some very severe disruptions. America is currently suffering a period of inflation, Mr. President, but nothing like what occurred during the American Revolution. Uh, I have read that the average annual inflation rate was about 4.3%, but it actually reached a high of almost 30% in 1778, leading to food riots and destruction of private property. But Congress continued issuing this printed money, the continental dollar. One of the problems that we should bring to this discussion was the failure of the Articles of Confederation. So we were 13 individual colonies until July 4th, 1776. And each of those colonies had a colonial relationship with the British Parliament or some entity back in Great Britain. Once we declared independence, we were now a new nation and it wasn't clear at the moment what those 13 new states, those 13 new countries, Virginia, Maryland, Georgia, North Carolina, should do. We came together to to survive, to fight the war. And it took a couple of years into that war for us to create the first constitution of the United States, the Articles of Confederation. And we had been operating in a kind of ad hoc way up until then. Suddenly we have Articles of Confederation, but the articles were so weak that they did not allow the national government, such as it was, to tax individual states. And it certainly didn't allow the government to tax individual human beings. So the government was desperately in need of money. It requisitioned taxes from the state. So it would actually send a letter to Virginia saying, given your population and your economy and your land base, we are asking you, Virginia, to contribute $5 million to the federal treasury. Uh, we hope that you will comply. And they would send another letter to North Carolina saying, given your population and so on, we ask you to send $3 million. But there was no enforcement arm. The states often simply ignored these requests, not because they didn't believe in the nation, but because they were so desperate to pay for the things they had to pay within their own state boundaries. And so the national government was this helpless giant that couldn't tax 
It had no resources. It had to request resources from the states. And this was a disaster. And by the way, that's the main reason why the new constitution of 1787 was written. The people who went to Philadelphia, and I was not one of them, were drawn there to at least to remedy that problem, to give the, the, the national government the, the federal authority to tax and the authority to enforce the taxes. In other words, if Virginia didn't want to pay those taxes, the national government would have the power to compel Virginia to meet its taxation needs. So this is really why you got the Constitution of the United States that you still enjoy with 27 amendments in your own time. That's very interesting, Mr. Jefferson. So what you're saying is that the memory of the struggles, particularly economically during the Revolutionary War, led to some of the attitude of how our present Constitution was written. Is that correct? You're absolutely right. So, you know, George Washington and, and Henry Knox and Alexander Hamilton and the others who were really the, the ones who waged the war were terribly frustrated. They couldn't get the states to send wagons or horses or hay or oats or cloth. And the states were not lackluster. They weren't they weren't deliberately trying to annoy the national government. They simply didn't have the resources. And so Washington essentially said, this is no way to run a revolutionary army. And the troops would desert. People would sign up for very short amounts of time. He couldn't, he couldn't hold an army together that, as you all know from American legend, and it's true, the, the, the troops sometimes didn't have shoes at Valley Forge. They, they were wrapping their feet in rags and walking through the snow and leaving a trail of blood as they walked, uh, medical supplies were inadequate, food supplies were inadequate. And so the, Washington became more and more frustrated. He understood the problem, but he became frustrated because he said, you can't be a nation if you don't have the capacity to compel taxation that will enable that nation to do the very basic things that a nation does. We got through it. We outlasted the British. They finally gave up. The French helped in a huge way not only by loans, uh, but by sending people like Lafayette and the, and the, the troops, the, the ships that, that boxed the British in at, at Yorktown. And so Washington and others believe that having barely survived this crisis, we needed to create a, a stronger federal authority, and that eventually came in 1787. Mr. Jefferson, we need to take a short break from this conversation. I'm glad you brought up France because I would like to talk about that in our, in our next part of the conversation, sir. Indeed. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour. This week we're speaking with President Jefferson about the cost of war. And when we took our break, sir, you brought up the fact that France helped the United States economically. In fact, it was in 1778, I believe, a treaty of alliance between the French and the Continental Army was enacted. And this meant that the French provided money, war material, and troops to the United States. This really was a determining factor in America's eventual victory, was it not? Of course. This was the work of Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Franklin spent a, about a third of his life in England and on the continent of Europe. We sent him to France to secure loans, if possible. It was a very difficult thing because the French government was already impoverished, and the French absolutist king, uh, Louis XVI, was not particularly in favor of Republican democratic social and political movements in the new world. But in the French and Indian War that ended in 1763, the French lost their new world holdings. They lost Canada effectively. They were defeated in a humiliating way by the British. In Europe, it's called the Seven Years' War. Here, the French and Indian War. When our revolution began in 1776, the French weren't interested in helping us so much as they were in hurting their ancient enemy, Britain. And so, in a sense, they were fighting the war against Britain through proxy by giving us this very large loan. That loan was really secured by the great Benjamin Franklin, and he, he signed uh, on our behalf a treaty of uh, perpetual amity with the French. That money did not win the war, but the war probably could not have been won without that loan. And then these young, brilliant people like Lafayette came over as freedom fighters who wanted to be part of this great movement in world history towards human liberty and the rights of man. And they helped us. And then at Yorktown, it was the French fleet that arrived pretty late, uh, but boxed in Cornwallis and made it impossible for him to break out. He was surrounded on the land side by Washington's army, which included, by the way, brilliant young Colonel Hamilton. And then at sea, the British were blocked in by the French fleet. And we would have won the war, I think, no matter what, because an island can't control a continent forever. But the Battle of Yorktown, not the last battle of the revolution, was certainly the one that made it clear to the British that the cost for them was simply going to be too high. It was going to be infinite for them to try to hold on to their American colonies. The, the British people were, were tired of it. They were tired of the taxation. They were tired of the loss of, of, of the, their troops, uh, or even for those troops that survived their long period of, of, of being abroad in the New World. And so the British were growing restive at the same time that the British um, treasury was being uh, drained, um, bled to death by this protracted war. So economics play a very important part in all of this. The British could have continued indefinitely. They were the greatest uh, army and navy in the world at the time. But that money has to come from somewhere. And the British people were didn't think that they had a particular stake in what's going on in Georgia or South Carolina. And so eventually the British gave up, but they did so in large part because of, of French assistance. So let me say one more word about that as long as we're on this subject. 
a dozen or so years later, the United States repudiated provisions of that treaty with France. When France needed us during their wars of the revolution, the so-called Napoleonic Wars, but this really before Napoleon came to power, Hamilton and, and George Washington, I'm sorry to say, um, proclaimed neutrality. So France had helped us when we needed them. They weren't neutral between 1776 and 1783. They gave to us in ways that from a geopolitical standpoint, we may not have deserved. And now when they were desperately in need of our support, and not just morally, but from the treaty we had signed with them, the Washington administration decided we would be neutral in the wars of the continent. And it seemed to me that this was a failure of our gratitude towards the French nation and the French people who had played so material a role in our securing our liberty. What I hear you saying, Mr. Jefferson, is in the end, America owes a debt of gratitude to France, doesn't it? Enormous debt. Our natural ally should be France. Most of the Americans of my time, in some sense or other, had come from, the, from Great Britain. Uh, there was a natural sort of cultural affinity between us. But our real allegiance should be to France. Remember that when the French Revolution occurred, the, the monarchies of the old world, Britain and Austria and others, formed an alliance to crush the French Revolution because they didn't want to see those same ideas of human liberty infiltrating their own despotic or authoritarian states. And so they banded together to snuff out this terribly liberating idea that humans were born with rights. And we, so far from helping France, which was the next logical step after our revolution, proclaim neutrality as if it were none of our business. Well, if France had said that to us in 1776, it's hard to know how our war of revolution would have come out. And so I was in the Washington administration. I was the secretary of state. I, I, I made the case for our, our moral obligations to France. I couldn't win that argument. And that hastened my desire to retire from the Washington administration, which I did in December of 1793. You know, they were behaving with what's known as realpolitik, you know, like deep pragmatism, self-interest for America, which all nations do, by the way, and probably all nations should. But I had a sentimental devotion to what France had done for us during the war, and I hearkened back to that treaty, and I urged the Washington administration to tilt slightly towards France. Uh, but it didn't. And this makes perfect sense in the world of hard-headed geopolitics. It makes very little sense if you really believe in the, uh, the, the ideals of humanity. You famously wrote, peace, commerce, and honest friendship with all nations, entangling alliances with none. Now, to use, you must be aware, Mr. Jefferson, there's a major conflict, a world conflict going on between two nations right now, Russia and Ukraine. And our current president defined this war as part of a world struggle of democracy over authoritarianism. I understand your stance of entangling alliances with none, but don't we owe our support to the fight for liberty and freedom? I understand what you're saying, sir. And late in my life, I said, at some point, all nations will be republics, some sooner, some later, eventually all. 
But I said before that, rivers and oceans of blood will flow. These spasms for liberty do not come at no cost, that this is going to take an enormous amount of struggle. Buildings bombed, innocents killed, populations starved, economies broken, armies marching across borders. And the people who die in every army, whether it's the U.S. Army or the French Army or the British Army, th these are on the whole young men with their lives in front of them. They almost never really understand the point of the struggle. They're patriots. They're doing their national service. They want to get married. They want to have children. They want to pursue happiness. They want strolls in the evening. They want to plant petunias in their gardens. They're human beings like the rest of us. And then we um, select a portion of them, often by conscription, sometimes by violent conscription, and send them off to some place halfway around the world to shoot at other human beings who never offended them. You know, wars are created by old men and fought by young men. I believed as a figure of the Enlightenment that it was too late in the world's history to solve our struggles through bloodshed and that our passion should be peace and diplomacy should prevail wherever possible. And that for the United States, at least, you know, the world's only real republic at the time, that war should be the last, and I mean the very last melancholy answer when all other diplomatic methods had failed. And, and we should attempt again and again and again to find the avenue of peace and only with the deepest sense of reluctance, even sense of tragedy, eventually enter into a war. I hope that that would become, in a sense, the mission statement of the United States. And, and I said, I, you know, I'm, I'm one of the creators of, of the Monroe Doctrine. Monroe was, as you know, one of my protégés. I wrote to him in 1823 when I was a very old man because he had asked me what our policy should be to wars in Central and South America, sometimes colonial wars, and what our attitude should be to affairs in Europe. And, and I said, our first and fundamental maxim should be never to entangle ourselves in the broils of Europe. And our second should be never to let them entangle themselves into the affairs of the Western Hemisphere. So yes, I believe in the cause of liberty. I hope that the people you speak of will be able to achieve self-determination and to, and to hold on to it. Whether this is a war that the United States should be involved in in a material way is for me a matter of great concern. I believe that the greatest thing the United States can do is to build a society that is so just, so devoted to the rights of man, so beautiful with its libraries and its dance and its music and its painting and its sculpture and its beautiful farms and gardens and its, its, its commitment to, 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 the, to the human project and to the pursuit of happiness that we would build a model nation and other nations would want to be like us because they would see what happiness can bring to humans when they are left alone to pursue happiness without undue government intrusion and without the madness of war. And that this would be a better export of the great ideals of America than guns and bullets and soldiers. And so I would like to export the idea of America with a capital I. I'm, I'm in a sense working from Pericles' funeral oration in Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War, that 
the greatest export for Athens, the greatest defense of Athens would be to build the most extraordinary polis in the world and let the world see it and ache to be like that. Mr. Jefferson, you know the phrase, the fog of war. You know, once hostilities begin, it's 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 difficult to even know exactly what's going on. I think of your time and the the distance and how long it, it took to get messages. And as an American citizen, I, I naturally uh, want to support the underdog, want to support those struggling for liberty. But it's difficult to even understand the facts of this conflict at times. Agreed, sir. So if I may simply use terms from your time for a moment, I understand that this is a war between Russia and Ukraine, is it not? Yes, sir. So I would wonder how many Americans could find on a map of the world the outlines of Ukraine, uh, what they know about the people of that nation, its history, its prior relations with Russia, with the czars or czarinas or whatever other entities there were, what its um, ethnic makeup is, and, and how much kinship there is between the people of one country in this battle and another. So that's the first thing. And I'm guessing that most Americans know very little about such things as they did about similar things in my own time. And I also know that in these situations, there is almost never a black and white paradigm that all evil is not represented by one nation and all virtue by the other, that in almost every situation that I was involved in in my life, there are gray areas, there are complexities, there are nuances, there are, there are perplexities, and that we living in the United States, thousands of miles from these quarrels, cannot possibly know enough to take sides in some sort of realistic way. And if we assume one, one nation is the nation of liberty and the other is the nation of oppression, that may in the grossest sense be true. But I think that in almost all situations, the actual dynamics of it are almost infinitely more complex than you can know from a newspaper clip in Philadelphia or Boston or Charleston. And so I would urge the American people to look inward, not outward, and to focus on your crises, challenges, opportunities, unresolved portions of the national enterprise, and not to presume that you know enough to interfere or even take sides in, in the quarrels of Europe. I thought of the Atlantic Ocean as a 3,000 mile moat between us and the havoc of the old world. And, and, I, and truly, I, I would have had a hard time seeing any American legitimate interest in a place that most people have barely heard of five or 6,000 miles away. Well, finally, Mr. Jefferson, by my own research, and it's hard to determine this because it's happening so fast, it would appear that the United States has provided about $53 billion in aid to Ukraine. The Senate minority leader said the future of American security and core strategic interests will be shaped by the outcome of this fight. Now, if that's true, isn't America justified in providing this aid as France did to us? It must survive. That self-preservation is the, the central purpose of a government. 
And whatever it takes to do that, a government must do. If we're invaded by the Canadians, we must repel them. If American security is indeed and measurably at risk, of course we must participate because our we would be morally reprehensible if we allowed something to happen that in the end undermined the capacity of the American experiment to continue along its traditional lines, of course. But establishing that connection is very difficult. And, and I would ask further, if you have spent that seemingly infinite amount of money to help one of the two nations at risk here, where does that money come from? You know, we began by talking about inflation and the depreciation of currency. Do you have surpluses in your treasury to that amount? Where do, are you taxing the American people um, by a special one-time tax for this war so that you can avoid the ruin of a national debt? Or are you simply printing money to enable this to happen? It seems like a very large sum, and I would hope that that your government was, was planning to retire whatever that amount is within a handful of years, and maybe to, to offer a special tax to the American people for this purpose. And let me say one last thing about this. Almost every war ends with the restoration of the status quo antebellum, with the restoration of the very conditions before the war. The War of 1812, our second war of national independence, is a perfect example. We fought this war with Britain. It was ruinous. They actually burned the capital of the United States. In the end, it was a, it was a kind of a draw. Now, nothing changed, no boundary changed. Each side re retired to its corner, but millions of dollars and pounds sterling had been lost. People died, blood was shed, towns and, and communities were ruined. Uh, it diverted our national enterprise from the arts of peace to the arts of war. And in the end, the, the treaty restored precisely the conditions anti-bellum before the war. And this is not unusual. This is almost always the result. And I would guess, if you think about it, the, the result of the war you're talking about will, will, almost in, will almost certainly end in the restoration of the status quo antebellum. And at what cost, sir? Thank you so much, Mr. Jefferson. And I guess we could both agree that we wish this conflict would come to an end very soon. Peace is my passion. May there be peace throughout the world and may the United States be the great exemplar of peace. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll be speaking with the creator of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, the man who portrays President Jefferson, Mr. Clay Jenkinson. We'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. I'm Clay Jenkinson. Sitting across from me is my dear friend, the semi-permanent guest host of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Mr. David Swenson. David, this is a really important topic, and I want to read something to you and get your reaction to it. I'm listening, sir. Ask yourself who said this. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, Every rocket fired signifies in the final sense a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electrical power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 in population and so on. Who do you think said that? Boy, I, I can think of a number of candidates, and I'm not going to guess. You must tell me. Dwight David Eisenhower. I'm not sure. The man who led the D-Day invasions of Normandy, saying towards the end of his great career that every dollar you spend on war is a dollar that is taken away from the work of peace, the work of education, the work of civilization, the work of feeding your own people and and the hungry people of the world. I got a copy of my favorite uh, magazine in the mail yesterday, David, the, the British Economist, and the, the cover story is about the coming famine, the, the famine that is going to uh, certainly affect Africa. And there will be hunger in Russia, hunger in Ukraine, that the, the great grain facilities on the Black Sea are tied up because the Russians have disrupted the, the port and, and occupied many of those port cities, that there is going to be a worldwide spike in the price of food. We already are seeing it. And there is going to be some spotty famine and real actual hunger because of this war. So it's not just between Ukraine and Russia. It's a world event it may not yet be a world war and that this this is exactly what jefferson was talking about so he regarded the revolution as a just war he did not fight in it but he regarded war war like ukraine v russia or france v britain as pointless because it usually ends with the restoration of the status quo and it costs a gazillion dollars and it's a setback for the cause of civilization and really when you get down to it what has been gained so this is why jefferson is important david is because we don't have to agree with him about this but he makes us think about these questions and i think a very useful way what what's your take on all of this i chuckled at the end of jefferson's segment when he he had to get one dig in on canada a nation which the whole world loves um, but not mr jefferson no, he wanted Canada. But I also found his uh, comments about antebellum very interesting. You know, these these wars occur, and in the end, nothing changes all that much. And and I also really appreciate you quoting Eisenhower, the, the president who, at the end of his presidency, warned us straight up about the military-industrial complex. Yeah, we've got that complex uh, deep in our national DNA now. I'm giving this talk soon in philadelphia an endowed lecture and i the the topic that i chose david is alexander von humboldt the explorer the german explorer oh, yeah 
right. and Thomas right. Jefferson. And he vi- we'll do a program on this. He visited Jefferson in the White House on June 4th through 10th of 1804, just at the time Lewis and Clark were in the middle of Missouri on their way up towards uh, the source of the Missouri River. And, and, and he and Humboldt, Jefferson and Humboldt, did not know each other before that, but they formed a friendship. And in 1813, after, during the War of 1812, so 1813 was squat in the War of 1812, Jefferson wrote a letter to Humboldt. And I just want to read you a passage from it because I think it's so interesting. The European nations constitute a separate division of the globe. Their localities make them part of a distinct system. They have a set of interests of their own in which it is our business never to engage ourselves. America has a hemisphere to itself. It must have its separate system of interests, which must not be subordinated to those of Europe, the insulated state in which nature has placed the American continent should so far avail that no spark of war kindled in other quarters of the globe should be wafted across the wide oceans which separate us from them. That's the classic statement of American isolationism. I think you made the point during the program. It's probably too late for isolationism in the 21st century. It's a very deeply entangled global system. And isolationism has actually bitten us a number of times in the 20th century, particularly. But but I want to say this, David, the status quo antebellum, because Vladimir Putin's invasion has stalled and maybe failed at the cost of unbelievable brutalization, 15 million Ukrainians have been made refugees by this, either internally or going west into Poland and Romania and so on. 15 million, that's a third of the population of Ukraine has been dislocated from their homes, homes they may never get to return to by this war so far. But now that Vladimir Putin appears to be stalled out, the geopolitical pundits are saying, well, maybe in the end he gets gets to keep the Donbass and he gets to keep Crimea and maybe a little corridor along the Black Sea to connect Crimea with Russia. In other words, almost exactly the status quo antebellum, that in the end, he gets to maybe consolidate a little bit what he got in more or less effortlessly in 2014. Can it be worth it? You know, the, what we're hearing is maybe 25,000 Russian troops have already died. A very large number of Ukrainians have died, both troops and civilians. That if you look at these cities, David, I mean, they've turned into something that looks like Berlin in 1945 or Tokyo. You know, how does this end? You know, let's say that that Putin wins in some sense of that term. He hasn't made any friends in Ukraine. You know, he's made bitter enemies of most of the people of Ukraine. He's damaged his position throughout the world. He's made Russia a pariah state. The economic sanctions are, are biting Finland and Sweden are probably going to be part of NATO, the very thing he wanted to avoid. Uh, He reunited the European nations when they were really in a state of disintegration. It's been a disaster, but even in the best possible case now, it's largely going to be the status quo antebellum. And you think, how can any even slightly reasonable human being regard this as worth it? Let me ask you this, David. You know, I can't watch. And I, every night I turn on the news and watch a little of this and read the newspapers and the New York Times and so on. 
and it's it i know this sounds like like almost a cliche but it's it sickens me and i'm guessing it yeah. sickens you i'm just sick at heart for and not just for the ukrainians of course mostly for them but i'm sick at heart for the cause of humanity well, you know, I wanted to talk to Jefferson about this because of his famous, you know, entanglements with none statement. And um, my takeaway was that Jefferson was um, reluctantly saying, yes, you have to support the cause for liberty. And and I do think that the idea of, of France saving America is, is a worthwhile parallel to consider. I do, too. You know, I'm going to sound like I'm just... Um, full of contradictions, and maybe I am. I looked on, and I know you did too, with the deepest chagrin when we fought an unnecessary war in Iraq. And I looked on with terrible chagrin when we prolonged what was at first maybe a necessary war with Afghanistan, but which turned into a terrible quagmire. And as we know, both of them ended not only with the restoration of the status quo antebellum, but arguably both of those nations were much worse when it was over than they were before we got involved. And I lamented those wars because I'm a Jeffersonian and I, I listened to him and I believe him when he says, it should be the very, very, very last melancholy thing that a nation ever does. It should do so reluctantly. It should be apologetic to the world that it's doing so. It should, it should, it should handle those wars with the greatest possible discretion. It should target only serious targets and so on and so forth. And I believe those were have been proven by history already to be unnecessary wars. Well, now I think this might be a necessary war. I feel like maybe this is one we should be involved in. I, I find myself, and I'll bet you do too, or maybe you do, maybe you don't. I find myself sort of wishing that NATO would take out one of those 40-mile convoys and say, we've got to step between Russia and this catastrophe. And I know that's a very dangerous provocation, but when we fight unnecessary wars, why do we cringe at fighting one I regard as a just war? Yeah, I, I pretty much am in agreement with you. But I, I have to say, you know, it, it, it's, it's difficult to know exactly what's going on, um, you know, in this era of, of propaganda. We know we're getting propaganda from both sides. I spoke to Jefferson about the fog of war, and he agreed. Um, it, it, so it's difficult to know exactly what what is happening uh, you know right now things don't look real good for ukraine uh they're in, in uh, some difficult positions it's hard to know what's really going on david and i think that i would say to the listeners to the thomas jefferson hour distrust what you're hearing not openly with cynicism and derision but be skeptical about what you're hearing from both sides and including from reporters because they're being kept away from some of the scenes of this havoc. And the fog of war makes us have a kind of a impressionistic view of what's going on. And we tend to radically oversimplify it in, in every that's, case. That's, that's exactly right. I guess that's the point I was trying to make. And yet, um, we have to acknowledge that there is an aggressor nation involved in this war that crossed borders with their own troops. And it's pretty hard to deny the... Uh, the aggression, the the bombing and the shelling of cities and the, the as you say, 15 million refugees. And it, a, it makes me sick at heart. But B, I know that as someone who's 
keenly interested in this. I don't know nearly enough to really know enough. I do think that Russia is the aggressor nation and Ukraine is the more innocent of the two. No question in my mind. But I also know it's a lot more complicated. Well, let me let me ask you this then. In you know the the final few minutes that we have in this week's conversation, what would Jefferson do? If he were living and president now, what would he do? Well, of course, we don't know. He died on 4th of July. Oh, yes, but that's your job. You're supposed to know or at least speculate. <laughs> I think that he would do less than we're doing. I think he would say, and I, and as I said in character, hey, where's the money coming from? You know, and and so that's that's a huge business in and of itself and b we're in the war so much of the material that's dropping on russian tanks and russian troops or russian ships or taking down russian airplanes those weapons were many of which the majority of which are now being manufactured in the united states of america by our military industrial complex so we're in this war it's a proxy war if we weren't supplying the ukrainians and the countries of europe weren't supplying supplying the Ukrainians, they would have lost the war long since. So we are in it. And I think Jefferson would say, let's ask a whole range of very rigorous and very serious questions about this, of ourselves, our purposes, the financing of this thing, uh, why we're in this, what we hope to accomplish. So we don't live in Jefferson's world, David. He was an isolationist and the Atlantic was a much wider ocean then than it is now. Today, we have something called the liberal world order that emerged after World War II, and that meant that there would be no more boundary changes. Well, uh, we saw the Cold War end, and now this battle is the first time since World War II that an aggressive army has tried to enlarge itself at the cost of another nation's sovereign territory. We had decided we would never let that happen, and NATO's Charter 5, it, it's, it's Article 5 in the NATO Charter, says that if any NATO country is attacked, then all of NATO has to respond. Well, Ukraine doesn't happen to be in NATO, and so we're all saying, well, it doesn't really count because they're not part of the club. I mean, that's just such a lame argument. If they were part of the club, we would protect them, but if they're not part of the club, I guess we wring our hands. And that's why Sweden and Finland are trying to get in the club, because that means if, if Putin attacked them, Article 5 of the Atlantic Charter would, would force us, would require us to enter it. And remember that Donald Trump tried to, to get us out of Article 5. He said Article 5 was not good because it would compel us to fight in such a war. I find that argument casuistic and really weak that, oh, too bad Ukraine isn't part of, the, of NATO, in which case we'd be there helping them. The liberal world order is a great, great thing. The failure of it is could be the beginning of chaos in Europe and Asia, and maybe even in the Western Hemisphere. I believe in the liberal world order. And by the way, liberal doesn't mean like Nancy Pelosi, it means something else. To let this happen opens the door to the possibility of a whole new world of, of really ugly, aggressive, violent disputes. And I, I fear for the future. I believe that Jefferson would say, be very cautious. But I think it made Jefferson's validity is in asking questions, but not providing the answers in this case. 
Well, sir, we're coming to a close. I, you know, I guess the most optimistic thing I, I can think of is, is the response of many citizens who have um, looked at this situation and say, it's 2022 and this is happening in our world. And I, uh, that's, that's my attitude as well. And uh, with that, uh, we want to thank you all for listening to the Jefferson Hour. Go to jeffersonhour.com for more information uh, to find out about Clay's um, upcoming tours, cultural tours, and online courses. And anything final from you, sir? Yeah, one quick thing. We have not mentioned the name Zelensky. He's young. He was a comic. He's immensely popular. He has stepped up in just an extraordinary way and inspired the world. The fact that the world is so much on Ukraine's side is in some large part because of the genius of Zelensky. We live in a gerontocracy. You know, it, it, the election of 2024 could be between an 80-year-old person and a 79-year-old person or something very close to that. Uh, we need, maybe we need some comics. Maybe John Stewart for president or, <laughs> you know, one of the late night talk shows for president. Uh, uh, the, the, fact that, the fact that we're having this conversation owes in some large part to the, the political leadership and genius of Zelensky. And I say all hail to him. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to a special edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. We'll see you all next week for another important issue of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson.